The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts forever know His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Oh, the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ, the rock, is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In part one of this episode, we began to make a discerned study of what God's Word, the Bible, has to say in context about the creation, ordinance, and institution of marriage. As before, our goal is by God's grace to come away with the necessary information revealed by God to understand, initiate, maintain, grow, and fully appreciate the beauty and sanctity of the marriage relationship as designed and intended by God. It is also our goal to answer and debunk many of the myths, aberrational beliefs, and misunderstandings which all too often accompany those who are skeptical, critical, or even hostile to God's Word. In episode 1, we broke ground on the fact that as opposed to the idea that marriage is some simplistic arrangement defined according to the dictates of constant influx humanistic variables based upon nothing more than convenience and self-gratification, marriage is in reality a creation ordinance designed, 
instituted, maintained, and blessed by God as a type pointing towards its intended substance. The substance, as was discussed, was and is the relationship between Christ, who is the substance of Adam and his bride, Eve, the church, who are a special creation, like Eve, born from the sacrificial death of Jesus. In the second episode, we began to examine further evidence and insight regarding biblical types and their substance. We looked at the account of the meeting and marriage of Isaac and Rebekah, as well as the ancient Jewish wedding as, an, as classic examples of the type of marriage. We also looked at Adam and Eve's respective roles in the fall, beginning with Genesis chapter 3. As we ended episode 2, we acknowledged that God's word is replete with much more wisdom and guidance regarding marriage. As was stated at the outset of this series, we proposed as our goal to diligently search out scripture in an effort to better understand the biblical meaning and understanding of marriage, as well as to answer and debunk many of the myths, aberrational beliefs, and misunderstandings which man, sin, separation, and the world have over time incorrectly attributed and or attached to marriage, God, or his word. In order to do so, from this point forward, we will divide the remainder of our proposed goals for this episode into two parts. 1. In the first part, we will take a semi-comprehensive survey throughout Scripture to see what God's Word says in context regarding any subject matter pertaining to Scripture. This will go a long way towards placing the subject of marriage back into a proper biblical worldview. 2. In the second part, we will ask some classical questions and use proper biblical exegesis and hermeneutical principles to answer and debunk many of the myths, aberrational beliefs, and misunderstandings which man, sin, separation, and the world have over time incorrectly attributed and or attached to marriage, God, or his word. Our survey will begin with the New Testament mention of marriage by Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 5, 10, and 19, as well as Mark chapter 10, which are regarding the same subject matter of marriage and divorce. Since they are related, we will read all of them and then proceed to study the whole in context. So let's look firstly at Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Quote, it hath been said, Whoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Unquote. Next we have Matthew chapter 10, verses 2 through 12. Quote, and the Pharisees came to him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife, tempting him? And he answered and said unto them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. And Jesus answered and said unto them, For the hardness of your heart he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, 
and cleave to his wife. And they twain shall be one flesh, so then that they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And in the house his disciples asked him again of the same matter. And he saith unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another, committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery." Unquote. Next we have Matthew chapter 19, verses 3-12. through 12. Quote, The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. They say unto him, why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marry her which is put away doth commit adultery. His disciples say unto him, If the case of the man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. But he said unto them, All men cannot receive this saying, save they to whom it is given. For there are some eunuchs which were born from their mother's womb, and there are some eunuchs which are made eunuchs of men, and there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it." Unquote. Finally, we have Mark chapter 10, verses 2 through 12, which reflects the same issue. Quote, and the Pharisees came to him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife, tempting him? And he answered and said unto them, What did Moses command you? And they say, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement, and to put her away. And Jesus answered and said unto them, For the hardness of your heart he wrote this precept. But from the beginning of creation God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and cleave to his wife. And they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And in the house his disciples asked him again of the same matter. And he saith unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery." Unquote. Now as we look at the above passages in context, we learn the following. In each case, we have Jesus, the Messiah, who is God in the flesh, addressing the topic of marriage, divorce, and adultery against the backdrop of the Mosaic Law and the traditions of the Pharisees in Jesus' day.
In each case, we have Jesus confirming that he, God, is the ultimate source of authority who creates, ordains, blesses, and maintains marriage between a man and a woman as a relationship pleasing to his perfect sovereign will for mankind. In this context, Jesus reveals that it was never God's perfect will to have marriage corrupted by sin to the point that man would find it necessary to void this covenant relationship. Notice that Jesus again, God in the flesh, although he has the opportunity here, chooses to reaffirm that in fact marriage has not changed. Despite some 6,000 years, Jesus, who was the agent of creation, states marriage is still what he designed it to be. It remains an ordinance exclusively between a man and one woman who become one flesh. If there was another option which God blessed, or it had changed, then this would be the time to mention it as such. But Jesus doesn't do it. This is significant because during Jesus' life, there were well-known alternatives with which Jesus would have been aware. But he only acknowledges this one relationship as being valid. In each case, the Pharisees were attempting to get Jesus to comment on the apparent contradiction, as they saw it, between God's proclamation that a man and a woman, when married, shall cleave together and be one flesh, which no man shall put asunder, and Moses' giving of commandment to give a bill of divorce in the case of adultery. They likely hoped that either Jesus would side with Moses, in which case they would accuse him of undermining God's original proclamation regarding the creation ordinance of marriage, or Jesus would side with God's original proclamation, in which case they would accuse Jesus of voiding the Mosaic law. But instead, Jesus sees through their trap and cuts to the heart. Because of sin and rebellion, Jesus reminds the Pharisees and everyone else that God moved Moses to codify laws and exceptions regarding marriage which would deal with the consequences of man's inability to live according to God's perfect will due to sin and rebellion. The Mosaic Law was designed as a schoolmaster to demonstrate conclusively and bring those who looked at it to the desired conclusion that man is hopelessly fallen short of God's glory and perfection illustrated by the law. More specifically, Jesus reveals that at least in part, man's heart is the issue which is to blame giving rise to divorce. We are reminded that prior to the fall, man's heart was still in its perfect state, being made and covered by God's covering glory and grace. After the fall, man's heart was removed from its perfect state and is now under the curse described by Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. Quote, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Unquote. What we learn from this is that God's creation ordinance of marriage, which was once perfect, is likewise affected by the curse of sin and separation. 
like everything else which sin infects, marriage is in a terminal condition. The only way there is hope to heal this situation is via the new birth. God must regenerate our hearts and our spirits by drawing us to a relationship by His grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus. Once justified, God's Spirit begins to transform and sanctify us by His indwelling presence to be conformed progressively into His image. This begs the question as to why in particular adultery or fornication is an exception allowing for divorce. Essentially, both deal with the same thing. What's the big deal? It's just sex. Everyone does it. In today's disposable fast food relativist society, the suggestion of such ideals of sexual purity seem antiquated and unrealistic. Many would say that it is unhealthy and repressive to even attempt to subject ourselves to such puritanical beliefs. So why are adultery and or fornication such a big deal? Well, as you will recall, God declares that when a man and woman are married, they become one flesh. They are united. Although sexual intercourse is the main reason why this is considered so, being one flesh according to God also deals with mental and spiritual unity in common faith, submission, and obedience to God as the ultimate creator, sustainer, and Lord of everything, including our relationships. It deals with the realization and acquiescence to the reality that our lives and our bodies are not our own. Instead, we owe our existence, our lives, our bodies, our minds, our hearts, our love, and everything we have to God. We are stewards of what God gives us, and we are accountable to Him for how we use what He has given us. All that we have, we are expected to use for His glory and purpose. If, instead, we use what belongs to God inappropriately against His will, then we sin against God in addition to sinning against our spouse, to others in general, and in the case of adultery and fornication, we sin against our own body. Thus, when one is married and one commits adultery, or one is married or single and commits fornication, which is simply an illicit sexual relation with anyone who is not one's spouse, that act of sexual union now joins the participants together in physical, spiritual, and mental ways which make them one. The underlying issue is that marriage is a covenant, not only between a man and a wife, but the contract is also one before and between God. Once a man and a wife have undertaken a covenant agreement to be one in the eyes of God, then they cannot remain truly and sincerely one if either chooses to become one with another person outside the marriage. Paul elaborates this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 15 through 20. Quote, Know ye not that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? God forbid. 
What know ye not that he which is joined to a harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's." Unquote. Here in these verses we learn three things. 1. If God joins us via His grace in a relationship with the Lord Jesus by faith, we are one spirit, one body. 2. If a man and woman join themselves in biblical marriage, they are one flesh. 3. If a person joins themselves with a harlot, they are one body. So here in 1 Corinthians, we have the revelation that when we are drawn by God's grace to a saving faith and relationship with Jesus, we are clothed with His image and righteousness. We are no more separated from God, but are reconciled through our union in Jesus' crucifixion, death, and resurrection. Since God's Spirit dwells within us, renews us, and transforms us to His image, we are one in spirit. As others likewise are drawn to a relationship with Christ, they also have God's Spirit. Whether there be only two or two million believers, they each are one in body. They are the outcalled ones, the church, the bride of Christ. This then brings us back to the original thesis. Whether we are talking about a man and a woman joined together in biblical marriage, or the church, i.e. the bride of Christ, joined in spiritual marriage to Christ, they are one body, one flesh, one spirit, and no man shall put them asunder. This is what Paul is advocating in Corinthians. I would also submit that this is what the type of biblical marriage represents regarding the substance. In other words, God created and ordained point two, i.e., quote, a man and woman join themselves in biblical marriage, they are one flesh, unquote, as a type demonstrating the substance of point one, i.e., quote, we join ourselves by God's grace in a relationship with the Lord Jesus by faith, we are one spirit, one body, unquote. This brings us to point three, quote, if a person joins themselves with a harlot, they are one body, unquote. You may recall that repeatedly throughout scripture, whenever God's chosen people, Israel, began to stop worshiping, honoring, and following Yahweh as their only God, and began worshiping, honoring, and following false gods, Yahweh declared that Israel was guilty of harlotry. In other words, God created mankind, and in particular those who were his elect people, to have a special relationship with himself. Because as a factual matter of reality that Yahweh is the one and 
only true and living God, it stands as equal reality that there are no other gods. At the same time, because of sin and rebellion, we must recognize that both Satan, man, and the flesh will deny the truth and will deny the true and living God while inventing any number of quote-unquote gods and or philosophies to invest our worship, honor, and devotion. Hence, it comes as no surprise that God is searching for fidelity, loyalty, and commitment within his fellowship relationship to his creation. Since this is the substance of God's relationship to himself, then just as with Christ, who is the bridegroom and the church, i.e. the bride, comprised of individual believers, we would expect to see the type, which is God's creation ordinance of marriage between one man and woman, reflecting these same attributes. This is why whether we are talking about the Old Testament or the New, whether we are talking about biblical marriage or God's relationship to his elect, whenever man abandons his covenant responsibility of fidelity, the end result is called harlotry or adultery. When using these terms, we are reminded that it is important to understand that a quote-unquote harlot is not simply a woman who trades sex for payment. Instead, a harlot can be a man or a woman who trades sex for payment or engages in sexual activity outside of a covenant marriage for lust. In other words, sex and intimacy outside of marriage for a man or woman would qualify for harlotry or fornication. Just so, whenever God's people engage in spiritual intimacy with other false quote-unquote gods or philosophical systems which undermine or replace the worship honor and devotion due only to the true God, we commit harlotry and fornication. Here again, just as the positive types of biblical marriage depict the substance of those attributes of Christ and his body, the church, the negative types of marriage in its fallen state depict those attributes which man displays towards his creator in his fallen rebellious state. Finally, we have the statement by Jesus given in Matthew chapter 19, verses 10 through 12. Quote, His disciples say unto him, If the case of the man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. But he saith unto them, All men cannot receive this saying, save they to whom it is given. For there are some eunuchs which were born from their mother's womb, and there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men, and there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it." Unquote. Here the disciples conclude that if, because of man's inability via sin and rebellion, man and woman cannot in and of themselves live according to God's will for marriage, then they reason that it is better not to marry and avoid the likely resulting failure to honor God's will. 
Jesus responds by revealing to them that God gives the ability to each person respectively according to God's purpose and will. In this case, Jesus reveals that there are three possibilities for God's elect. 1. Some people God will create and will, from birth, have the inability to engage in all of the various duties and responsibilities of marriage. 2. Some people will be unable to marry or to perform all of the duties and responsibilities of marriage due to the acts or intervention of other people. And finally, three, some people will be given the necessary strength and purpose of will, along with God's grace to refrain from marriage in preference of the pursuit and furtherance of God's kingdom. Having said this, some may conclude that at least two of the above three seem to contradict the proclamation by God in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, that it is, quote, not good for man to be alone, unquote. But this does not have to be the case. The reason is that prior to Genesis 3, i.e. the fall, both Adam and Eve were still in their perfect state, covered by God's grace, glory, and image-bearing qualities. Consequently, it would be possible to be joined together as one flesh and not fall prey to fornication, adultery, or other issues which would result in divorce. Said differently, without sin, neither divorce nor any other thing which sin results in would be possible. Without sin, men and women would remain covered by God's grace, and since it was originally God's will that they would each have a helpmate, they could marry, become, and remain one, and the result would always be very good. After Genesis 3, quote-unquote good as defined by God's standards was and is an impossibility according to Romans 3 due to man's inability. The after-effects of Genesis 3 therefore place marriage as one of many things which are under the curse. Instead of having the ability for every man to have perfect fellowship with God and their spouse, man is now caught up in a war between God and Satan. The focus has therefore shifted from simple fellowship between man and God to God moving all things according to his sovereign will to accomplish his ultimate purpose of reconciliation of his chosen elect and the punishment and destruction of sin, Satan, rebellion, and the wicked. Hence, marriage, being single, or any other circumstance in life, should rightly be understood as situations which God has potentially ordained as a possible gift or tool with which we may receive by God's grace to glorify Him and accomplish His purpose as his foot soldiers and saints. For the time being, this concludes this episode. Please join me again for episode 4. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A 
at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Trust